comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 24. Hear God's word to us. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Did you watch watch Apple's big I announcement yesterday? You know then, there's a new Apple TV a supersized iPad and two new iPhones on the way, which is kind of crazy because the last iPhone came out less than a year ago, but we're now programmed to feel like if we don't get the new one, we're missing out on something. So today, we went on the street and asked people to try out the new iPhone and tell us what they think. Now, even though they announced it yesterday, the new iPhone won't even come out until later this month, so what we did was we gave people the old, the oldest iPhone, <laughs> the original first-generation iPhone that came out in 2007 and told them it was the new iPhone and, well, here's what they thought of it. We're out here talking to people because Apple held a conference where they announced their newest iPhone and a couple of other new products. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually have a test device here. Um, We wanted to see if we could maybe get your opinion on it. Awesome. Check it out. Oh, cool. Nice and light. Small. Fits in the palm of my hand. Quite nifty. I like it. It's actually uh, quite comfortable. Better than before. I don't have, my thumb doesn't have to stretch all the way across the country to type. 
what some of the new features they have on this one. It's got like a higher resolution screen and a much better quality camera. Okay. So just walk us through what you're seeing as you use the phone. I'm seeing a smaller screen, probably more compact for somebody who don't want to drop their phone a lot. Calendar just opened up so perfectly. Um, did did it open up faster than it did much, on your previous Much, much faster, one? much faster, yes. It's actually very exciting. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I like how, how fast the processor is moving. Yeah. It's not lagging and it's not holding me up. The resolution on the screen itself is much sharper. Yes, absolutely. All right, definitely. Pictures are clear and the camera is amazing. What do you think of the two phones side by side? You have your uh, six out here as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think this is daintier. It seems like the same weight, even though it's distributed differently. And what about the size and feel of the phone? I love the size. It's not too big. It, it just fits so perfectly in the palm of my hand, easily to slip into my handbag as well, yeah. easy to find. Mm -hmm. Are you going to consider purchasing this phone uh, when it goes on sale in two weeks? Probably. Yeah? Yeah, probably. Because it's uh, better than ever before? you got to have it. got to always have the new one. You think Apple's done it again? Apple always does it again. Now, <clears throat> this is fun, huh? Well, um, the... This video is actually older. They've done it for different generations. Jimmy Kimmel has uh, different generational phones. They haven't done one for the iPhone 8 yet. I can't wait for them to do it again because I feel like every time a new one comes out, they make this video and they always say, gotta have it. Gotta have the new one. And, and, and what Jimmy, uh, he makes such this great, this great, great, great observation that we're programmed kind of. That even if it comes out, if it's slightly better, bigger, faster, whatever, we've gotta have it. If we don't have it, we feel like we're missing out. And, and for me personally, I'm really excited for the iPhone 8. I was in Chicago this last week doing some uh, recruiting for our residency program, and I made it down to the Apple store in downtown Chicago, and I just had to hold the iPhone 8. I couldn't wait. I was like taking pictures. I was saying all the things that they were saying. I don't know if it's actually better, but it is better, right? And I don't know if you've uh, read any reviews so far, but listen to this New York Times article on the release of the new iPhone 8. It says, reviews of the newest iPhones, the iPhone 8 and iPhone 8 Plus, landed across the internet on Tuesday, with most major reviewers agreeing that they represent a modest improvement over the previous generation, but remain overshadowed by the looming iPhone X or iPhone X. You know, the, the new is still overshadowed by the newest, and we're obsessed. At least I am. Maybe this is a sermon to me, and you're just like, you'll get over it, Gabe. But no, I love new things. I love the new iPhone 8, and I can't wait for the iPhone X, 10, whatever, how you ever say it. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that just gets my blood pumping. And I have to ask myself why. Once again, maybe this is a sermon to me, but I think I'm seeing some nodding heads and I think I get some, you know, some recognition here. Can I get a witness? Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm seeing some of you go like, that's not me, but I know that's you. I, you, you put your iPhone away, I get it. Now listen, why do we do this? Why are we obsessed with what's new? Why do we just get consumed with what's next? And I think it's partly because of this. Whether we want to admit it or not, we believe that newer is better. Newer is better. And, and don't misunderstand, I'm not just saying new is kind of nice or interesting. But really, we, we believe that, there, that in the midst of history, improvement is taking place. Like substantive improvement is going on such that what is new and what is newer is better than what came before it. And it's not that just every day feels better because we all have those days, Right? But when you scan and purview the broader movement of history, if you were to ask anybody in this room or the broader cultural context in which we find ourselves in the United States, you were to ask them, do you think we're better off than we were 10, 20, 100 years ago? The overarching response would be, well, of course. 
10, 20, 100. You could think of something in which the world is progressing. And if you have the gall to stand in the path of that progress, what's the response? Well, you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of history, do you? Why? Because we assume history is going to a better place, a newer place, a better place than where our parents were, a better place than where our ancestors were. And the good news or the gospel of this newer is better is that we have hope in progress. If you just give it enough time, all of these problems will work their way out. And who are our saviors? Technology and science. If we just submit to them, they'll finally free us from the oppressive chains and pain of tradition. Because what's old is old, and what's new is better. And this is, a, this is kind of the water we swim in. There's almost this broader recognition that this is just the way things are. But, but I want us to pause this morning and ask the question, is that true? Is that the way the world actually works? And is that a story worth living? Like there's a part of it that, that feels right, that newer is better, but there's also a part that makes me ask, and maybe you've sat there and asked, is there something missing? Like why, why is it that I think just automatically that when the iPhone 8 comes out, it's going to be better than the iPhone 7. Newer is better. Well, today we're asking that question. We're kind of diving into these ideas, and this is week seven of a seven-week series where we've been pressing into assumptions like these, these stories that we've been sold or been buying into as a culture, and oftentimes we don't even realize it. I mean, did you know that we're one of the first cultures in history that actually thinks that we don't believe we have beliefs? We don't believe we have beliefs. In a lot of ways, we just think when we're having conversations with one another, we say, well, that's just the way the world is. We don't believe we work from these baseline assumptions that there are beliefs that make up the way in which we see the world, that we're not just Lockean, we're not just blank slates coming and no figuring out the world based upon scientific facts. No, 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 no. We don't believe we have beliefs, but we do. We live in the light of really baseline assumptions. And it's upon these assumptions and beliefs that we should be thoughtfully assessing and saying, okay, is this true? Is this good? Is this beautiful? And is this worthwhile? And so we come to week seven of this series. And, and by God's grace, as we've been navigating this, we've seen time and again that God has spoken. That he hasn't left us just there twiddling our thumbs or trying to figure this out all on our lonesome. Instead, God has spoken into these stories. And he's spoken most brilliantly in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis which gives us just such a story. A story, I think, that by which we can assess every other story that comes our way. So over the past seven weeks, we've seen as we've kind of held up the book of Genesis and said, okay, this is a, a grand overarching story about the way that God is working and speaking into the world. And as we approach these different stories, we've seen God say yes to certain aspects of these stories and saying, hey, a wholehearted affirmation, but then also challenging other aspects of these stories. So just by way of review, just to remember where we've been Let's look at these stories real quick. In week one, we began by looking at the story of YOLO. You only live once. <laughs> in one part, one aspect of that, that's very true. <laughs> in another part, there's something deeply missing in that story. It's much deeper. And there's parts of that that are missing in, in the way we understand the world. Week two was the powerful story of be true to yourself. There's an element of that that rings true with the way the world works, but then there's also something missing. Week three, we looked at how 
We perceive our work and how we go about our work and how we often say, well, it's just a job. But can't there be something more there? Is there meant to be something more than just claiming it as just a job? Week four, we wrestled with whether religion should be kept private. And can it be kept private? It should start private, but should it then, and does it naturally leak out into every facet of our lives? Week five, I decide what's right. We wrestled with moral relativism as to whether, if that's actually going to get us where we want to go as a society, is that really as freeing as we say it is? And then week six, you do you. And so today we've saved the best for last (laughs) in the sense of newer is better. And we're wrapping up this series by asking what God makes, what God's story makes of this story newer is better. Is the world progressing upward and onward? Is it really always on the way of getting better? Is that the movement of history? Is that true with the way the world works, or is there something missing? And if there is something missing, is there a better alternative? Okay, so let's take a look together. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, beginning there in verse 1, if you're using one of our, or uh, page 1, if you're using one of our community Bibles, or one of your Bible apps, it'll almost naturally just open to Genesis 1, so you should be ready to go. And as we've mentioned each week, all of these issues, these stories, they're so much bigger than what we can deal with this morning. I mean, tomes have been written on this idea of progress and the idea that newer is better, and so we're going to just touch on it. And Scripture speaks deeply into this, much deeper than we're going to be able to go this morning, but we're going to just touch on it. So if you have specific questions that come to mind, you can text them into this number. You can write down the number now, maybe. And if you have questions during the sermon or after the service or tomorrow while you're sitting at your desk at work, feel free to text them in. And at 3.15-ish, tomorrow on Facebook Live, we're going to be navigating and continuing the conversation forward in this really, really important story of newer is better. So is newer really better? And what we have to say at the get-go here is, is a big gospel hour, hand in the air, kind of raised affirmation. Yes! <laughs> you know, newer is better. In a lot of ways, newer is better. And we see this right here in the story, okay? This isn't just affective. This isn't just something we feel and see, but we actually see it here in the story. Remember, there was a day when there was no world. And God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, a whole new place where he took what was nothing and he made it into something, what was chaotic and he brought order. He brought human beings where there was nothing but dirt, dirt, there you go, that's a new one, dirt. And you know, and he brought life where there was silence. And, And what does he say over all of this newness? He's like, it is better, it is very good. And then God charges human beings With their job description, we've looked at this a couple times along our series because it has such a formative impact on us and a deep understanding of who we are. Made in his image, he tells us to keep going. It's called the creation mandate, and it's still held true to who we are as creatures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, keep doing what I've been doing and make more human beings to keep doing what I've been doing because God loves to empower his creatures to make good things better. He loves that. He's wired us to continue to do that. And in a lot of ways, listen, humanity has progressed, haven't we? And this progress is a God-ordained good. 
So for example, there's been a huge decline in the share of the world population living in less than $1.25 a day, from 53% in 1981 to 17% in 2011. And I want to be true, like there's been a lot of debate whether that's just too low of a bar for what counts as poverty anymore. And some development experts are arguing we should be using a global poverty line of something more like $10 to $15, right? But the very fact that that debate exists, <laughs> that we've had to say, well, that's too good because, you know, like, that's a, that, that's a sign that things really are getting better. And there's elements to how economies have been formed and actually just law has been instituted in certain economies. I mean, there's, there's a reality that in a lot of ways, global poverty has decreased significantly. Here's another example. Globally, both male and female life expectancy increased by six years from 1990 to 2012. Increased by six years. That's partly because, listen, medical care has advanced in incredible ways. Did you know, maybe you were already, already terrified to go to the dentist, but did you know that they used to put arsenic in your teeth when they did dental surgery? If you don't know what arsenic does to you, go look it up. It's terrifying. Praise God, we're in the 21st century, right? They, there's been a lot of development and a lot of progress that's really, really good. And needless to say, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, as creatures made in the image of a God who loves to make his creation even better, we should be working towards greater access to education, healthcare, sustainable business practices for the common good. We should be about innovation and scientific exploration. Yes, and, and that means as the creation mandate carrying out and also loving our neighbors well and seeking to follow Jesus who upholds the creation mandate and the command to love our neighbors well, we should be about that. Progress is good. And we've made a lot of progress. God ordained progress as he's designed us to carry out. But sometimes, maybe more times than we care to admit, what feels like progress is anything but. So let's take a look. Stop! Don't eat that food! Who are you? What are you doing in our house? I'm from the future. I'm here to warn you, don't eat that food. Why not? The eggs. They're full of cholesterol. What? Cholesterol. It, it clogs up your arteries. Eating even just one egg can dramatically increase your chance of heart attack. Don't eat eggs. Godspeed. Well, I guess I better take those eggs. Wait! Stop! You're back! Yeah. We were wrong about the eggs. How? Well, it turns out there's two types of cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and eggs actually have both. So you can eat eggs, but just don't eat the egg yolks. So stick with the egg whites. Thank yes, thank you. Yeah. Godspeed! Yeah, yeah, okay, so it turns out that the amount of cholesterol in a food doesn't actually affect how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. The eggs are probably fine. In fact, we sort of don't even know what cholesterol is. <laughs> but the steak! You can't eat the steak! <laughs> uh, what I love about that skit, and actually it's really long, um, because they just keep making these revelations as they follow food fads, but, you know, it illustrates that newer isn't always better. Newer isn't always better. 
We can learn something new, something we think that's groundbreaking, truly innovative, and then look in disdain on those who came before us and say, how could you think that, Grandma? You know? But the reality is, there's going to come a point, whether you're right or wrong, that the next generation, the next generation will look at this generation in here and do the exact same thing. will point their finger and think, how could you have ever, ever missed it? And the reality is, is that this idea, this story, newer is better, is really fragile. And it's not just because there are times when we think something's really innovative or new and we've actually just got the facts wrong or we didn't have all the facts to begin with and so we spoke overly confident about what we thought was this new innovative idea. But then there are also times when we actually do make some significant progress and solve a particular problem in the world, but the outcome leads to even greater problems (laughs) than it sought to solve in the first place. This newer is better idea, it's really fragile. And for example, one area of growing conversation, and before I say what it is, I just wanna say, like there's a lot of conversation around there, there's a lot of debate about this. Um, and honestly, there are like polarizing viewpoints, but I think it's worthy of conversation. There's a lot of growing conversation in the realm of social media, right? So Facebook's mission is to bring the world closer together. I'm a fan of Facebook. Like, I have an account. I think it's a really good thing. You're like, how dare you? Yeah, I've got an account. I'm just naming it at the beginning here. Honestly, I think it's been great for um, my family, my extended family, to keep track with my kids. It's a way to further good causes. I've seen people raise a lot of great awareness and money. It's, and in other countries, it's been a way to highlight governmental injustices and create an avenue for free speech. It's really been great. And in terms of their mission to bring the world closer together, it's been great. A lot of good, right? But in the midst of these advances, now comes talks, and you've probably seen this in the news about the ads that go along Facebook and, and how you can't track necessarily the people who are paying for those ads and how much those then impact political platforms. Or you could even look at how this provides access for cyberbullying to reach more people more quickly and destroy the lives of the innocent. And, and more and more hours are consumed behind a screen airbrushing your identity and how it can possibly, if that becomes your primary avenue of communication, deform the art form of actually being able to have face-to-face conversations. Look, there's a lot of debate out there, okay? A lot of it's saying when you use it too much, when you use it too little, but the question still remains. Is this a good, ultimate good? Has the problems it's solved worth it for the problems it's created? And if you notice trends, now Facebook is more old hat, and the next generation's moving on to even different mediums, mediums like Instagram becoming the primary medium, which many sociologists are saying only exacerbate the same problems they experienced in the Facebook social media platform. So progress and yet degress. Advancement and then simultaneous retreat. And it feels like it's always a mixed bag. But why? Have you ever sat there and thought about like, why does it always seem like progress never leads to perfection. Like you look over the history of the world. Why does it always feel like it's just out of reach? Why when things, we want them to get better and we fight to get them better and there are always newer things, do we never really get the world as good as we hope it would be? Why when we want progress and are making a lot of progress, we never reach that full potential? And it all comes down to this. This is really important to understanding what is exactly wrong with the world. If you misunderstand what needs to get better in the world or what's wrong with the world, you're going to find yourself endlessly frustrated. You're going to find yourself at the end of your life, at the end of your vocational journey, just overwhelmingly beat down and frustrated saying, 
what is wrong with me or what is wrong with other people, and it'll leave you cynical, frustrated, and possibly burnt out. So what's wrong with the world? Why does it feel like we're consistently spinning our wheels? What are we missing? Well, we heard it read this morning. After the first human beings choose to disregard God's good prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we dealt with in a previous message. I'd encourage you to go check it out. It was the one on I Decide What's Right. Check that out. We detail that out a little bit more. After that happens, we read, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. That's where that you is pointing to. It's pointing to Adam. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. The world and everything in it changes. And then humanity is cast out of the garden. You see, the real problem with why our progress always feels like it has limits, the real problem why we feel like we reach the ceiling and progress never closes the loop to perfection is because creation is cursed. Creation is cursed. In other words, the natural outworking of the world as it is today is to undo progress. Creation is cursed. Now, I really want you to do this with me. If you've got your Bibles open, I want you to look at your Bibles. If you have a Bible app, this will help detail out a little bit. But you'll notice that the text is laid out a little bit differently throughout chapter 3. Something happens right at verse 14 of chapter 3. Verses 1 of chapter 3 up through verse 13, it has like a narrative dialogue structure. It has more of a normal paragraph structure. But when you get to verse 14, it switches to poetry. And this is really important, okay, because when God pronounces the curse over creation, he does so like a slam poet. It's, I, I mean this because in the curse, when it's pronounced, the depth, the height, the weight, and the fracture of creation is so grand, so robust, so all-encompassing that only the imagery of poetry can grab it. And we could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks unpacking the details of the curse, just how broken and cursed the world is today. We could be talking about how we now relate to ourselves first and foremost with shame and guilt. We could talk about how we naturally now approach God with distrust rather than trust. We could talk about how the curse invites within every relationship either this explicit or implicit tone of dominating one another. The curse touches everything we touch and then some. But this morning, and a lot of ways in which we could go and a lot of work we could do to unpack, I want to focus our unpacking of this curse that is upon creation on how it impacts our progress. Because creation is cursed, our work in making progress is cursed. We need to understand this. And I know maybe that sounds pessimistic, but staying with me, stay with me, okay? The natural flow of the world today is to undo human progress. The natural flow of the world is to undo human progress, and we see it everywhere. You see it personally. Think about this. Any relationship you have, if you aren't proactive in investing in that relationship, the natural pull is towards where? It's not towards more intimacy. Oh, we haven't talked for two months. I feel so close. No. The natural pull is to less, less. You have to be proactive because the natural inertia of that is to feel less intimacy, and that's true of friendship. That's true of marriage. That's true with your walk with God. If you don't do anything, if you don't invest in it, it feels like you're moving further and further away. That's the inertia of relationships. You also feel it wherever you work. If you work in agriculture or you have a garden, what happens when you pull up weeds? They come back. 
Like, it's not like, oh, that's done. This part's perfect. We can, no, no matter what you do. I've tried all kinds of chemicals that have probably destroyed certain parts of the world, you know, with, with these chemicals. And then the weeds still come back. They come back. Or you think about a different job. If you have any profession involved in building physical structures, a house, a bridge, or any form of infrastructure, over time they decay. They fall apart. They need replacing. You know, I have a 100-year-old home, and I felt like I was all done with projects, and then, you know, something breaks. It's just the natural flow of things. The most beautiful cities need the greatest amount of maintenance because the natural flow, over time, everything is leveled either by natural disasters, floods, or just normal elements. And then there are times on top of this when broken people get together and create broken systems, broken governments or corporations that accelerate the inertia of undoing God's creation or God's people or dehumanizing others. And if that weren't enough, we learned about this last week. We're here, right here we see that we have an enemy, someone who's actively working to undo what God has done. The evil one is still prowling around looking for those whom he might devour. So, like I said, besides being a buzzkill, why do we need to understand? Why do we need to understand the repercussions of this curse? Why do we need to know that creation is cursed and that our work towards progress has its limits because of this curse? Because if we don't get this, we will feel endless frustration. Or we will bury ourselves in our own shame and guilt because we didn't feel, we feel like we didn't go as far as we could have. Or we didn't finally usher in perfection or self. Or we castigate another people group or another person in some form or shape and say, you should have gone far. And we have these unrealistic expectations towards others. It just is a toxic way of seeing the world. If it's just newer is better. If history is only moving to progress rather than understanding that this world is broken and that that our progress comes with a ceiling. You'll be burnt out, or maybe worse, you'll be a workaholic. You'll never know how to rest and stop because you'll feel like it's one email away from perfection. It's one more project at work away from perfection. But the reality is, we can't overcome the curse with our progress alone. We can't overcome the, the curse with our progress alone. You see, there's this assumption in newer is better. It's deeply embedded, and we often can just skip right over it. But the assumption is that we arrogantly assume we, we know it's broken and have the power within ourselves, within our own action, to bring about the solution. That's the idea. But the reality is we cannot overcome the curse with our progress alone. There are limits to what we can do, to what you and I can do. There's a ceiling to change that we can bring about as human beings in a world that is cursed. And listen, that's not, we can often look at the limits and see them negatively. But I want you to see how this is also first and foremost God's protection. Because if there are limits to the change that you and I can bring as people who have great capacity for good and great capacity for evil, that means there are great limits on the amount of evil that has progressed in any one generation. Do you see that? How God is also protecting his creation by putting this element of undoing that even certain evils over time left, un, you know, people not being proactively furthering them will be undone. There are certain elements of that that's true. And part of that is because God longs to protect us. But it's also there to remind us that we need someone bigger to fix it. 
that we can't be our own saviors. The technology won't save us, that science and its answers won't bring the solution to our deepest desires, that we'll never have an, enough education to outsmart all the brokenness of this world for good. And all this, every tear you shed, every whisper and shout of loneliness that echoes in your heart, every thorn and thistle you find that you're constantly pulling up and cutting down what, through whatever vocation God has you at, this is a reminder that you're not the ultimate end to that good, that God has to be the one ultimately to come and to bring this progress to perfection. Creation is cursed. Our work in making progress in the world is cursed, and we cannot overcome the curse with our progress alone. So, do we just, you know, throw our hands in the air and say, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, for tomorrow we may die? Is that the way we go, partying our way to the end? I mean, this is the element in which, if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the author there is saying, everything feels meaningless because at the end of my life, I'll either be forgotten or what I've done will be undone. It feels meaningless. Is that the end? Are we here helpless and hopeless? Not at all. And this is where the Christian story reminds us that hope has a deeper ravine in the nature of creation than despair does. Such that there is a day coming, a better day, a new day, when all things will be remade new. All things will actually be remade new. If you look to the end of the story of history, revealed in the end of the story of Scripture, in Revelation 21, we get a glimpse of that end when God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Not that I'm making all new things, but I'm making all these things and I'm making them new again. I'm giving them new life. Things that kind of reminisce and smell of what was old, but shimmer and shine with what's new and renewed and rejuvenated. And we see hints of this all over Genesis 3, and I just want to name two, okay? For example, you experience the curse today. Of course we do. And it won't be forever. And this is why you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. We heard that read for us, where the first man and woman are cast out of the garden, and actually, God puts cherubim there with swords so that they don't enter the garden. Why does he do that? Because the tree, of the tree of life is there in the midst. He says that they know good and evil. And if they eat of the tree of life, that means an eternal cursed existence. And God says, I don't want that for my creation. Guard them from coming in again that they might be eternally damned to be in this state forever. God protecting his creation again. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he's talking to Eve and talking about her offspring. And he says, there, there will be a child that comes that one day will conquer the serpent. He will be bruised. He'll suffer. He'll experience deep pain in his heel. This is this metaphor for deep wounding. But he'll bruise the head of the serpent. He'll take this curse upon himself and he'll make the world right again. And when we look throughout history, every author in Scripture is pointing to this one, this aching for the one who'll take the curse, the one who will finally make the world right. And who is it? And it is none other than Jesus Christ, a son of Eve, the second Adam, as the Apostle Paul talks of him, the son of God, when God became flesh and dwelt among his home. And he came and he walked with his people. And then he died 
to take our penalty and our curse upon himself. And he rose again the third day to usher in the very fragments, this initial new creation. And he creates a new people and he gives this new people his new Holy Spirit who's bringing new creation life to the world. A people who both point back to the garden when God is walking with his people in intimacy, but also point forward to the day when God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. You see, there is a day when Christ will come and do what only Christ can do, where he will make all things, all things will be remade new. And this world, it'll reminisce of what is old, but feel brand new at the same time. Only God can do that when he comes down, when he comes to his home and he remakes his home and he remakes it with his remade people. So yes, newer will be better one day, better than we can even fathom. And I ache for that day. I think of... You know, my best memories and my greatest hopes, God will bring those together in a better future than I could imagine. And even my deepest nightmares and my greatest pains will be forgotten forever in the past. That's what he's got ahead. Newer will be better. But until then, if this is the story in which we find ourselves, what do we do? Like, how does this actually change tomorrow where you find yourself in various vocations When you come to understand that, yes, progress can be made, but there's a ceiling to this progress, this side of Christ's return, what does this have to do with what we do with the majority of our lives, with where we find ourselves in work and relationships? Well, here's what we hear echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. As people made in the image of God, those now called to follow the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we hear this, work for progress, waiting for perfection. Work for progress waiting for perfection. So work for progress. Yes. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a group of Christians in in, in Ephesus, and he writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, talking about the spirit-empowered life for those who are following Jesus in the midst of still a cursed world. And he says, look, amidst everything that's going on, making the most of every opportunity, you should be making the most of every opportunity for the days are evil. Right there before, in verse 15, he says, I want you to lead your lives as wise not as unwise. You go up to chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians. He says, be imitators of God. Where does he get this? We're made in the image of God. Live out who you've been designed to be. People who reflect God and his care and his love. Those who are wise, who understand the way in which the world works, not as unwise, acting as if there is no framework that leads to flourishing. Making the most of every opportunity. Yes, for the days are evil. Work for progress. Do it. But simultaneously, coming with the recognition that it is a broken world, that there is a ceiling, this side of Christ's return, such that when he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, after all that he said to this church, he says, come, come Lord Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the hope isn't that we're going to find perfection this side of Christ's return, but Christ needs to come and finally make all wrongs right. Work for progress, waiting for perfection. And you know what that means? That means we aren't afraid of innovation. We aren't afraid of scientific breakthroughs. But we do come with a skeptical lens when technology makes too grandiose of claims. It means we're not dismissive of what is old just because it is, quote-unquote, been around for generations, but instead we come with a critical eye and ask, okay, how is that true and how does that still play into this time today? We come 
with this broader, more healthy place of standing instead of just embracing carte blanche, all that's newer as better, but instead say we, we serve the one who is the ancient creator and one day he will make his broken world remade again. And I was thinking about how this kind of plays out in different vocations just to continue to really think through how this has substantive impact on our lives. This isn't just a neat idea, but it should change the way we live. And it looks like this. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, it means working for progress, training up your child in the way that they should go, pointing them towards virtue, reminding them of the gospel that Jesus loves them unconditionally such that he lived, died, and rose again for them and that no matter what they do, God will endlessly love them. So therefore, out of gratitude, trust him with your life. Yes, yes, yes. But you're waiting for perfection. And as a parent, that means you don't have unrealistic expectations on your children. You expect them to fail, and you come alongside of them. You're not expecting perfect little saints, no matter how much energy you put into them. But you say, hey, we're in a cursed world, and we're broken human beings, and I'm with you in this. Maybe, maybe you're a social worker. I was thinking about this. And in the midst of that, with mental incapacities, there are certain elements for us as human beings that will never be fully healed until Christ comes back. And so you come with patience for those that you walk alongside of as a social worker. And also realism in a cursed world that there are systems of injustice that keep people who are in poverty in poverty. And instead of burning out, you can call it quits at the end of a day because you know ultimately that the loop of perfection doesn't get closed with your endless hours so that you can do it the long haul and serve alongside people for the long haul. I was thinking about how it plays into being an artist. <laughs> in some sense, writing a sermon is an art form. In another sense, it's just echoing back what's in the pages of Scripture. But if you're an artist, it's always wrestling with good ideas, new ideas, and wrestling with various elements to expand your horizons of creativity. But if you're an artist, you know there always comes this moment, and it almost feels like something isn't right because you feel like, there's just one more thing you could do, one more element to finally finish out that work of art. And it feels like every time you give it over that it's more of a surrender rather than a finish. If you're an artist, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you feel like, oh, I could have done this just a little bit longer. But if you're always waiting for the perfection loop, you'll never get your artwork out there because it always feels like it's slightly undone, slightly less than where you want it. And as an artist, you have to surrender it and say, okay, that's an element of what we find in ourselves in this current status of humanity. And then maybe just to get a little more specific, you know, I was thinking of the corporation Cerner. I know that touches a lot of people's lives in this room, you know, uh, a lot of us either in explicit or implicit ways. If you find yourself in the hospital, you know, Cerner, with the work there, whether you're working in HR or the accounting or whatever in the broader business fabric or doing the medical equipment advancement itself, yes, work for progress. Continue to love your neighbor through that hard work, but also come waiting for perfection, knowing that sometimes those technological advances will have backfires and really, really bad timing. That there may be spaces where that fails and people's lives will still be lost. There are going to be spaces in which your really good work and medical advancement technology still won't be enough. And so you work for progress, but you wait for perfection. And no matter where God has you, you know what that does? When you start living in light of the story of Scripture, it frees you. 
It frees you from the overbearing burden of being the world's savior. It frees you to work hard, but to not be crushed by your work. It frees you to be humble and ask for forgiveness because you recognize you will fail. It frees you to be humble and to give forgiveness to others instead of having unrealistic expectations for them in the midst of their work. And most of all, it makes us a praying people, a people who know every day we get up in the morning, we've been carried on by God's sovereignty and his care, and we need his spirit to work through us if we're going to make any dynamic progress that day. And then also help him or ask him to help us at the end of the day, surrender our work back over to him and say, we're waiting for your perfection. God, we're longing for you. Come, Lord Jesus. We can make progress. And we should work for progress, but we're waiting for perfection. And that, you know, that progress can be inspiring, but we're still looking for the one who's bigger than us to come and finally make it better than we could have ever imagined. Work for progress, waiting for perfection. And listen, that's hard. This isn't like an easy answer. It's not like, oh, well, now I can sit back. I just feel a lot better. No, no, no. This, this entails a lot of hard work. But at least it makes sense of our frustration, we feel. At least it actually describes the way in which the world works more accurately. At least we can say, now I get it a little bit more. And as we work for progress with the hope of God working through us, we can rest at the end of the day knowing that he will return and make all wrongs right. His newer really will be better. And that, that's the kind of story I think that's worth living. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, I know we've just touched the surface of this story that we just assume is true. That newer is better. And in some sense it is. But in some sense also it's lacking. God, may your word, may the good news of the gospel take the primary place in defining what is real, what is true, what is good and beautiful. God, may we rest in your story and so find the freedom that you so long to give to us. We do so first by embracing Christ and his finished work on the cross for us and hear the, beck, the, the, the call to come to pick up our cross and now follow him and die. May that be true of us. Help us. Send your helpers to us. And may we have the humility and strength to receive the help they offer, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.